0: Welcome to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Now, here's your Lighthouse Council host. Hi, welcome to the Beacon podcast, your connection to nonprofit success. I'm Jeff Jowdy, your host for this episode on estate planning and why nonprofits need to focus on estate planning and plan giving right now. Really honored to have joining me today, Joe Chickie. Joe is Senior Vice President and Consulting Director for SHARP, a firm that specializes in planned giving. And I will pause before I continue the introduction and share that Joe is a longtime friend and colleague who I've held in the highest esteem at at several points along in your career, Joe. You are a, a star in our profession for your knowledge, your integrity, and your high standards. So just grateful for you for your friendship and all that you have done for our profession. Joe has worked for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, the Rush Presbyterian Medical Center and the University of Illinois. Joe served as a lead fundraiser for a $1.5 billion campaign at the University of Illinois, and a $500 million campaign for a major Chicago hospital. And prior to joining SHARP, Joe oversaw the charitable services group for Regions Bank Middle Tennessee Division, where he served philanthropic individuals, family foundations, and charities. He obtained his bachelor's degree from Rhodes College and his master's from the University of Illinois. He's the past president of the Middle Tennessee Planned Giving Council and the 50 Forward Endowment Board, and a former board member of the National Association of Charitable Gift Planners. Joe, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Jeff, an honor
0: to be with you
1: and the folks at Lighthouse. You guys continue to do exceptional work, not only locally, but across the country and, and honored to share a few thoughts today. Well,
0: again, yeah, as we were talking before we go on the air, we were talking about some of our, our common friends, some icons in the profession, and and we, we count you among that category. So we're just thrilled. And this is really a an interesting time here with a pandemic and tragically the death toll keeps rising and people, especially elderly, older people, are continuing to be isolated, and we see reports in the news, at least, that this is prompting people to update their estate plannings, and I guess, A, is this something that you're seeing, and what should the approach with the sensitivity of the pandemic and the death toll, um, how should a nonprofit approach this right now?
1: And that's a great question, Jeff. You know, this is an unusual time, obviously, for everybody, although I think, as you understand, and most people understand, one of the biggest challenges in legacy giving is creating a sense of urgency to encourage people to take action. So I think we really have to see this as an opportunity. There are, there's no question there are more people now accepting their mortality and, and concerned about it. So for that reason, they're being more proactive about meeting with their professionals and their state planning attorneys and putting plans in motion. So I think you need to be sensitive, of course. You need to be a professional about how you approach people. But it's important to understand that these are some of your best donors, and you want to make sure that you're having conversations with them about this opportunity. So, you know, I think there is a unique opportunity here, and we need to be positive about it and to move forward and make sure that we're staying close with our best donors. So I know there's some reluctance from some people, but I think I've always been sort of a last half full kind of guy. I think working with your best people, they still want to re- support you in any way they can, whether that's money today or money tomorrow. And let me say this too, this is an important point. You know, our data as a firm over, the, you know, over 60 years of doing this and frankly recently confirmed from Russell James and some of his research in the Quest world, 50% of the people that name a charity in their estate have not named any charity until they write their last will. Wow. I think a lot of people don't realize. That's really surprising to a lot of people. So what does that mean? That means talking to somebody in their 40s and 50s about a will, it's fine. I mean, they may be really committed to you, and that's a great thing to learn. Mm -hmm. But you're not really going to have true success unless you're talking to those people in their 70s and 80s and 90s. You know, we have well over 50,000 people over 100 years old in our country. Wow. So... It's just critical that you're close to those people that are older, that are supportive of you.
0: That's profound, and I'm just reflecting for myself, and I won't share what category of life I'm in, but I certainly have changed my will several times, and I'm sure I will several more. So what a, what a powerful statement. And to be candid also, I think if I were to change it now, the communication I've received from nonprofits that I support, my top few would impact how I might change that right now, how I've been treated during the pandemic. Back to your point of staying in communication. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just so important, Jeff, that you'd be top of mind when they make that final decision, when they do the operative will in the right way. I think today's world is critical to be close to them and be thankful and say, Hey, you know, if you are able to do something for us after you've taken care of yourself and your family, we'd be truly honored. And it would be incredibly
0: impactful and meaningful for us. When you mentioned our friend Russell James, and you're making the same point, it would be because you don't hear from a donor for a number of years. Well, number one, might be shame on us because we haven't reached out to them (laughs) if we're waiting on them to, you know, and hear from them from a donor standpoint. But if you've got a longtime supporter that stops, that's whatever age it is, it may be health, it may be personal, right? And we're missing an opportunity. A, we're not being a genuine friend and we're not honoring the relationship and be from a stewardship for the organization. And or we're going to miss an opportunity.
1: Yeah. One other quick comment, you know, statistic here, Jeff, one of the things we've done for many years is we audit big national charities. So we'll look at every estate over 20, 30, 40 year period, how old were they when they wrote their operative will, how long after that did they pass away? And one of the things that's interesting is most of our data will illustrate, you know, well over 500,000 estates. What's fascinating is People will typically name two or three estates in their will, those that are charitable. But the other interesting point, they will typically pass away within four or five years after they write their last will. So there is a pretty short window. It's not like they finish a will in 20, 30 years later, like you pointed out. Those things are updated, you know, three, four, five times in your lifetime. And if you're not close to them when they execute the last one, then, you know, unfortunately, you're not going to benefit
0: and Joe, that's great. I love the, the points you brought up and then the urgency I thought was profound, and that's so true. If there's not a more urgent time when we've all looked at our mortality and health as a population, it's now, gosh. And how about just overall, what would you say for our listeners that either have a legacy giving program or are looking at one or looking at improving it, what would you say, Joe, are the two or three most important elements for them to have in place?
1: Well, I'll share a quick story, you know, I was fortunate to meet with Robert Sharp Sr. who founded our firm back in 1963, and I still remember what really resonated with me from the training program I went to. He talked about how when people are doing their their final will and their estate plans, who do they include? They include a spouse or children or grandchildren. It's predominantly family. And then maybe there's a charity that It's so important to them that it's really just an extension of their family. You know, it's a simple message, but it's such a big deal if somebody names you, names your charity as a beneficiary. But his big message too was these people have now become part of your family and the charity needs to treat them as a family member. And if you don't, then you won't benefit. So I think, you know, now is a perfect time to really thank those people that are your long-term supporters, whether they've named you in their heritage society or their legacy society or not, you know who those long-term supporters are. Now it's a great opportunity to reach out and just say, hey, your gift has had a tremendous impact and is very meaningful for us. Stewardship is so important in Plain Giving. And I think the other important message here is it's sending that consistent message um, over a year, over a year, over a year. It's sort of water dripping out of a faucet. That's how you're stewarding these people and thanking. And sometimes I find charities, because some of these donors aren't necessarily making significant major gifts during their lifetime, they will get forgotten. They won't be spending the time with them that they should. And here's the reality, as you and I know, through our trainings with people like Bill Sturdum and the Institute for Charitable Giving and University of Illinois, who was one of my mentors, you know, one of the things he communicated so well when I worked for him was there, there are two reasons why people make gifts primarily. Number one is because they believe in the mission of the institution that you represent. And number two, because they're involved. And I think there's still lots of creative ways, obviously putting somebody on your board or some simple ways, but now, you know, Hey, with all the social media stuff, there are all kinds of ways to reach out to people and have them play a part. I've been working with uh, one independent school in Chicago recently and they had a really successful crewing team many years, and when they do their thirty and forty and fifty year reunion, crewing team gets together, and so they've been having these Zoom calls for the alumni gatherings for their reunions because of course they can't meet now, and they bring them in. This guy has an amazing way of bringing in one member at a time, and our all American. Jeff Jowdy from the 1945 crewing team, here he is today, you know. <laughs> I mean, so I do think there's some creative things you can do. Now, having said that, I think we also still see the most effective way to communicate with that group set. And I think it's, you need to focus on that group that's 70 and older for the most part. Would rather see a printed piece still. It's starting to change a little bit. And maybe at the end of the day, it's about doing a little bit of both. And there's no reason why you can't you know, send them an e-message and then ask them. I, I tell our clients on the marketing side, ask the donor how they want to be communicated with. Should it be a printed piece or would they rather read a, an e-newsletter? Let know you and then and communicate that way. It is more expensive to print stuff and put it in the mail, but we still see more success in that traditional format, whether it's a postcard or a custom publication. And then ideally in person, I would say one other thing too, you can really have a meaningful phone conversation with people that are older for the most part. They are screening calls more than they used to, but if you have a relationship, you can really have a meaningful
0: discussion with them on the phone. Joe, I was struck by two things that you just shared. One, the statistics that I've just reviewed, direct appeal, how even with email and giving online, that direct mail still carries the day I think that reinforces your point that we need to be communicating how our donors want to be. And we often recommend a mix for our clients like you suggested. But the best thing is to be specific and let every donor tell you. But other is you and Bill Sturtevant and others are so great at relationships and you've had long tenure at institutions where you had great success. And, and Bill certainly did. But the thing that scares me is not only the short tenure in our profession, but now, and even in higher ed, seeing these mass layoffs of advancement departments in the midst of a recession when there's probably no other department that would bring in five times plus the investment, right? And what pains me is I'm thinking about these donors that have counted on a relationship and that professional, he or she may be gone now. And how do you pick that back up? So how about, Joe, if if there was, say, one thing that our listeners could do in the next six months to secure legacy gifts, what would you suggest that they do?
1: So I think as we've talked about it, it's important to remember it's a relationship business. I think the most important thing for them to do in the next six months is to make sure they're close to their best owners, as as I've really already said. I guess the other message is don't assume that all legacy gifts happen tomorrow. There are wonderful opportunities in the blended gift world now. And if you have those people that truly are committed to you, I think they're great opportunities to talk to them. So I'll give you an example. I had a meeting with a woman, I guess it was about a year ago now, who was 84 years old, no children. Her husband had passed away about three years prior to me meeting with her. He had left a $100,000 gift in his will to the school, which was wonderful. It was an endowed gift for scholarships. And She wanted to do something in addition to that. So she was the typical meeting where you're, you know, she had to go out in the backyard and get the fresh mint to put in your iced tea. You know, those are the wonderful meetings we get to participate in. And she had a kitchen table full of documents, and she finally pulled one of them out. And she said, Joe, she said, my accountant's really bothering me. She said, to do something with this. So I looked at the document, well, it was her required minimum distribution from her IRA. Well, her required minimum distribution was $84,000 a year. Wow. wow! Doesn't take a genius to figure out that that was a pretty significant asset. And so my question to her was, well, you know, is this money that you need today? Or you think you're going to need next year? Oh, no, I don't need it. I've got property here. and I've got investments here. So I'm thinking I might add this to the endowment. I said, well, that would be incredibly generous, but I said, what if we were to take all this $84,000 and provide scholarships for kids this fall? Think of what the impact would be. She paused for a minute, she says, wow, you know, that's a wonderful idea, I think I could do that. Well, to make a long story short, She's now, the next year, She this last earlier this year, she called and said, well, you know, what is the maximum I can take out of my IRA to help those kids? She got it. The school, of course, invited her to come meet all the students. She's like adopted all these kids now. And then we had a conversation with her and said, you know, we, we want to make sure this continues long-term. Would you consider naming the school as the beneficiary of your retirement plan so that we can fully endow this scholarship so these kids get money every year, which she's now agreed to do? So I think it's a simple but perfect blended gift where she gives the money every year and then she gives it when she passes away. So it's not complicated. And I think they're wonderful opportunities in that same thing could be done with donor advised funds. If you've got somebody given every year, have them name you as as a percentage beneficiary of the donor advised fund. You know, there's some wonderful win-win opportunities, I think. And there are plenty of people that are capable of doing that. I would say this, there's been a lot of noise about how people don't have the money they used to there's a concern and that's certainly true for many, but there is a, a component too. If we look at the markets, they, even though they dropped 30%, for the most part, they've come back. I would argue there are a lot of people that now have made money for this calendar year from an investment standpoint. So gifts from donor advised funds and, and even gifts from retirement plans, I think there's still going to be a number of people that can do that. And I think you should promote them. Awesome.
0: Joe, awesome. as always, provided a great insight. I always enjoy our conversations. And I always learn a lot. So we're just delighted that you're our guest today. And To our listeners, if you need a a go-to resource on legacy giving, Joe, it should be at the top of your list. You can follow the SHARP group on Twitter at SHARP, S-H-A-R-P-E group, and by visiting SHARP.net. We are just honored to have you. Appreciate our longstanding friendship and all that you do for our profession. and And I hope that our listeners that have any questions will reach out to Joe at the Sharp Group. Thank you again to our listeners and to Joe for this episode of the Beacon Podcast: Your Connection to Nonprofit Success. Thanks for listening to the Beacon: Your Connection to Nonprofit Success. Tune in every week for nonprofit topics with special guest interviews suggest future topics, and learn more about upcoming podcasts and guests at LighthouseCouncil.com.